This is the Flannery Podcast. Welcome to our fourth episode. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for coming. I'd like to start off with the condition that we're now suffering, which is that many of us are social distancing and staying at home. I think that this is a period of isolation and renewal. We are all social animals. We are not meant to be alone. We abhor isolation. But as we look offshore and now close at home, we stand in a minefield of unseen danger the coronavirus about us and we don't know where. We've learned slowly from other nations the hard way that this stealth pathogen will knock you to the ground, hurt you, and can even kill you. So isolation is not so unattractive in those circumstances. After all, no one has a vaccine, no one has a cure. Peril abounds outside. A sneezing stranger, a giant, an unseen droplet on a countertop, a child thought to be safe, the person who can't hear well, who gets too close to your face, for these times when a friend's intimacy can put you both in a hospital bed. Many were indifferent to the virus at first. We were told it was an exaggerated alarm. We wanted to believe that it was like the flu and would go away when it got warmer. It's a little warmer now but that's not even close. So we've lost trust with public officials, but that's neither here nor there. We are withdrawing from society to isolation, willing hostages to deny the virus access to our touch or our eyes or nose or to hurt us or to catch a ride to hurt someone else. Where are we going? We're all going to different quarters Familiar, but will we think of our home as a prison or an oasis? In a city, we are likely in an apartment, perhaps a small apartment. I once tutored a kid algebra and geometry at a Manhattan apartment on Fifth Avenue, near the plaza, and the elevator came up and opened into the student's apartment, not like any apartment I'd ever known. Former President Richard Nixon had an apartment in that same Fifth Avenue building. I met him a couple of times going up to tutor my young student. So much crystal and mahogany and high ceilings. So few are withdrawing from society to a place like that. When at Columbia University undergrad and at the law school, I had a rent control apartment. I lived alone. It was like a room and a half with a fire escape, my terrace, on 107th and Broadway. It cost $94.17 a month. I could hear my neighbor through our something like cardboard walls. There was a playwright down the hall, John Ford Noonan. I think that would be a small place for a long period of isolation. It was really a monk-like study hall, great for that and to sleep, and when not in class or some extracurricular, we'd often go to Central Park. That's where we can escape our isolation today. Central Park and parks across the nation in cities, towns, and the burbs. Henry David Thoreau, toward the end of his life, famously called for townships to have a park, or rather a primitive forest, 
of 500 or 1,000 acres where a stick should never be cut for fuel, a common possession forever for instruction and recreation. Today, we should be glad that many followed his lead. The architect of some great parks, Frederick Law Olmsted, made the case that it is a political duty of Republican government to set aside great public grounds for the free enjoyment of the people, forever guaranteeing its citizens the pursuit of happiness, a constitutional right. In a park, you can breathe the air and be safe if you maintain your social distance of six feet away from anyone else. Out in the country, we may not have parks, but we have a lot of open country. Thoreau celebrated the fact that in wildness is the preservation of the world. That's more true these days that the great outdoors may help us preserve ourselves and in doing so the world. If we could only sleep through this crisis like a large powerful bear in a cave in the woods to hibernate until the danger is past. Instead, we have to reach down into some of that pioneer spirit that recedes into the past more each day. Frederick Jackson Turner explained America by his frontier thesis, that the American nature wasn't carried here from afar, but it came out of the American frontier and it gained new strength each time it touched a new frontier. The frontier released Americans from European mindsets and dysfunctional customs. Turner wrote, behind institutions, behind constitutional forms and modifications lie the vital forces that call these organs into life and shape them to meet changing conditions. That's what we have now, changing conditions. The peculiarity, went on to say, of American institutions is the fact that they have been compelled to adapt themselves to the changes of an expanding people, to the changes involved in crossing a continent and winning a wilderness, and in developing at each area of this progress out of the primitive economic and political conditions of the frontier into the complexity of city life. This virus challenges that frontier spirit for us and the city and rural life we've known as well, to reform our ways, to resist the crisis and in a large and dramatic way, to reshape who we are and how we live because we don't know if this crisis will last for weeks or months and in this time and space, we have to carve out a way of life. Forming habits that fit the work you can do at home, to exercise, read, write, garden, fix what could not be fixed and decide with trepidation and great care when or if to go shop or get gas or do anything you used to do but that you must do now. None of this will be easy. It will be hard, but it's necessary. And it's the American heritage to find that ruggedness in ourselves to get us through this devilish disease. Hang on for a minute. Listen to the next bit. virus a crime story you hear in the background the sound of a popular crime show you might ask what crime has to do with the handling of our national crisis well it should have nothing to do with the handling of our national crisis but when we have a president 
who won't give us straight information, who lies all the time, that becomes a crime because the people who are at risk based on the information he gives us are A, going to suffer, and B, some are going to die and have already. The more Trump talks, the more he unnerves us one and all. He doesn't have a clue how to handle this crisis and he won't tell the truth about what he does know. And you might ask, what is his changing hidden agenda? Well, perhaps he didn't want the truth out when the impeachment proceeding was underway and pending. Perhaps he didn't want it to affect the State of the Union. Perhaps he was concerned about the election. Perhaps he was concerned about manipulating the stock exchange. None of that allows him to withhold from the people of America information our intelligence services had that our entire nation was at risk. The Post confirmed in a recent report that U.S. intelligence reports go back as early as January the 3rd. Some suspect that it went back before that, warning we were likely facing a worldwide pandemic. By the end of January, these intelligence reports, the daily briefings and those reports from the Director of National Intelligence were full of dire warnings, and this continued into February. There were many people from Trump on down in the West Week and people in the Senate, certainly on the intelligence committees, who received this information and did nothing, nada, to prepare for the onslaught. Amazingly, on January the 22nd, Trump is still saying, we have it, the virus totally under control. Nonsense, bubkiss, plainly that wasn't true. According to the Post, the State Department was tracking the virus report and meeting to discuss their findings in the third week of January. And at the same time, on January 22nd, Trump is tweeting high praise for China, working very hard to contain the coronavirus, adding, it'll work out well. We all know he's lately changed his tune on China, and if he's nothing else, he's an Olympic-level blame shifter. By the end of January, Trump was saying, China's on top of it 24-7. Now, the Senate Intelligence Committee, including the chair Mr. Burr, Senator Burr, and on the House side, I'm sure, were being briefed on the virus, and they knew this virus was gonna be an overwhelming epidemic, perhaps comparable to the more serious 1918 influenza when 50 million or more persons died. On February the 7th, Trump is saying that the Chinese president will be successful, especially as the weather starts to warm and the virus becomes weaker and then is gone. On February 26th, a reporter asked Trump a really legitimate question, if he was worried about the virus spreading. Trump answered, no, because we're ready for it. We're really prepared. We hope it doesn't spread. We know how ready he was then and now. On February 28th at a rally, Trump took it to a whole new level. He remained a virus denier, at least publicly, despite the information he was getting, and he was giving false hope and red meat to his most virulent supporters. 35,000 people on average die each year from the flu. Did anyone know that, he asked. He continued, 35,000, he repeats himself. That's a lot of people, and so far, we've lost nobody to coronavirus in the United States. But he went further. It's never enough. He went into politics. Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. This is their new hoax. Hoax, he told the nation the virus was a hoax when all the evidence before him, certainly by that late date, told him it was not a hoax. It was an emergency of amazing proportions going back to 1918 that threatened the lives of people, threatened the market, threatened the whole nation. On his desk was a daily briefing telling him it was the real thing. Trump lied to the nation. Listen to what he said on that date. 
This is their new hoax. We have lost nobody to coronavirus in the United States. The press is in hysteria mode. By March 5th, the United States had 129 cases and 11 deaths. Of course, the stats were still light, if you will, because there'd been too little testing to know, to measure exactly who was sick and how wide this virus was affecting America. As I'm making this podcast, the United States now has more than 21,000 cases and 281 deaths. And one of the reasons the numbers are soaring so high is we're finally getting out tests and finding out what the real facts are. It will get worse before it gets better. And as for being ready for it, we run shortages of test kits, masks, scrubs, ventilators, hospital beds, and the, and the list goes on. Listen to someone in the front lines fighting the epidemic. This may be unprecedented, but it was predictable. This production capacity should have been ramped up months ago. My colleagues on the front lines, we need masks today. We are pleading on social media, get me PPE to keep me and my patients safe. The president may say that things are being produced, but they sure as heck are not showing up in my state or in the states of all of my colleagues across the country. We need those masks and gowns now. You would think Trump would step up when people say things like, we don't have what we need. But he's told us loud and clear that he's not a shipping clerk. Listen to this. The federal government's not supposed to be out there buying vast amounts of items and then shipping. You know, we're not a shipping clerk. When a reporter invited Trump to reassure the nation not to be afraid, Trump attacked the reporter instead. Listen to this. What do you say the Americans were scared, though? I guess nearly 200 dead, 14,000 who were sick, millions, as you witnessed, who are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. I think it's a very nasty question, and I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. The American people are looking for answers and they're looking for hope. And you're doing sensationalism and uh, the same with NBC and Comcast. So I don't call it, I don't call it Comcast, I call it Comcast. Let me just ask for whom you work. Let me just say something. That's really bad reporting. And you ought to get back to reporting instead of sensationalism. Let's see if it works. It might and it might not. I happen to feel good about it, but who knows? I've been right a lot. Shakespeare said, guilt spills itself for fear of being spilt. Trump lies, and he does so badly, and he can't stand to be found out. And that's his personal problem, because the public problem, the job that he has, is to take care of America, to preserve and protect the nation, and that is not what he is doing. He thinks he's preserving and protecting his right to be in the White House, to lie to the American people, to protect his ego. Luckily, we have other leaders and we have experts to help us out so that we can find the truth, if not in the West Wing. We can't find it out from others. And we'll talk about that in a moment. As for Trump, we can't expect to get nothing from nothing. When I was a kid, every Sunday on the front page of the Daily News, the cartoon section of the paper, 
they'd have one of Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers. Well, I have a Crime Stopper, and this one has to do with the virus epidemic. We should scrutinize the stock transactions for every member of the Intelligence Committees, House and Senate, both parties, and see if they traded stocks after learning from secure intelligence briefings the grim predictions for the virus pandemic that was going to strike the states. That is, we should be looking to see if they traded on insider information as members of Congress for private gain at the public's expense. No member of Congress may trade based on insider information because of the Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act passed in 2012. That's what we call securities fraud. That's a crime. Truth is, this crime has already been committed. We're not about to stop it. What we can do and what we should do is detect and prove it. When we get rid of Trump's consulary, A.G. Barr, and have an honest A.G. in the next administration after the November election, then we can find a prison cell to lodge these criminals posing as public servants. This one senator, the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Richard Burr, a Republican from North Carolina, who received daily briefings on the impending virus pandemic is something we have to look at. Senator Burr, receive confidential information critical to protecting the safety of Americans. He didn't say anything to the Americans, to the general public, to warn them. But he did tell the high rollers who brought him to the dance, who contributed to his campaign what was at stake, closed doors, about the dangers of the epidemic that were coming our way. He did this at a February 27th luncheon. He compared the coronavirus to the 1918 flu epidemic that killed so many Americans. Listen to this. There's one thing that I can tell you about this. It is much more aggressive in its transmission than anything that we have seen in recent history. It's probably more akin to the 1918 pandemic. Not only did the senator fail his oath to warn the public, he betrayed his public office for his private advantage. He sold 33 stocks worth somewhere between $628,000 and $1.72 million. In two years before, he'd not made a trade like this. He wasted time. We could be preparing for this crisis. That comes in terms of lives that could have been saved. He feathered his nest. He should be ousted from the Senate and put behind bars. Truth be told, we should be looking at the financials for every senator and House member. We should see if any others use their intelligence, instead of telling the public about it, to feather their own nest. Then we would know who to replace in the next election. Next up, we're going to talk about real leaders in these trying times. Hemingway had a phrase to define courage. He called it grace under pressure. Well, that's certainly not Trump, not ever. But there are several men in recent days who have shown some grace, if you will. And I want to focus on one who I think is the, the best of the group. Seneca's view of providence was that a god doesn't make a spoiled pet of a good man. He tests him, hardens him, and fits him for good service. And I think that makes sense. I think that's who our leaders are and should be. From when he was a young man, my candidate, uh, now an older man, has been tested exactly for this position, I believe. Seneca asks, why do many adversities come to good men? 
He answered him his own question, the assaults of adversity do not weaken the spirit of a brave man. He said, all his adversities he counts as mere training. For without an adversary, prowess shrivels. He said to win without danger is to win without glory. The danger here is a pandemic, it is real. Whether we find glory in victory or the effort to overcome this disease remains to be seen. Suspense is always an element of bravery, courage, of life and of history. I find the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, to be the man who has conducted himself as a leader for the people when others are cautious and precise, late to the game, plotting, misleading, and even self-serving. The governor has been front and center fighting the pandemic in New York and consulting with governors from New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania to construct a common strategy across state borders. He pours over statistics into the night, we know this because he's talked about it publicly, to make policy that he announces in the morning that conforms with the tragic reality facing us. He consults with the best who have handled crises. He listens to them and they know what there is to know about infectious diseases and he passes it on to the public. He doesn't hold it back. At one of his daily briefings he said, this is why you're here. This is why you're in government. If you don't want to be here, you shouldn't have run for public office. It seems so obvious, but many people think it's just the adornment of a public office, not the work that they want to do. That's what challenges the best among us who ever run for office. And the conversational way he speaks, he shows you it's personal too. And I'm talking about his daily briefings. He says, his aging mother Matilda, he references her, he talks about her, he names the rules of social distance and how to practice it after her. The rules of Matilda, Matilda's rules. He talks about the children, his children, now grown somewhat, and how he knows that you have to navigate having them at home with you. He's making a connection with the people who are trying to deal with this, who are staying at home to save others and themselves. It's not a fireside chat, but it is authentic and it calms the fears of the public with reliable information, however stark, and with the plans to address the onslaught of the virus. The governor learned at his father's knee how to govern. He was his dad's campaign manager when Mario Cuomo, his dad, ran for governor of New York. Andrew himself was also an assistant DA. He served as a cabinet officer as Clinton's secretary of housing and urban development. He was elected a state AG and he's in his second term as governor. He's been tested. Like all New Yorkers, he can find his elbows to get his way. In the past that's been held against him. Some think maybe that helps him through this crisis, that he will find a way to get things done to save the people of New York and to give instructions to the rest of the nation how to lead in this crisis. He's immersed himself in the details, the medicine, the geography, uh, the needs to, uh, to get supplies and how to do it in hospital space. He's talked about construction, getting the Corps of Engineers to help if, if Trump will get off his, well, you know and where to buy it. He talks about the penetrations and dimensions of the disease that grows as the tests reveal its overwhelming reach. The most important thing he does is to tell the people what he's doing and why, and with PowerPoints and in a conversational way that's understandable, that's commonsensical. No confrontations, by the way, not with the press or anybody else. You may have heard him talk. Listen to this for a moment.
This is not a joke, and I am not kidding. We spoke with the mayor of the city of New York and uh, the speaker of the city council, Corey Johnson. I told uh, both of them that this is a problem. That's what he does every day with his staff, all seated, not bumping into each other, six feet away from each other, making a presentation and engaging afterwards in a free form Q&A with the press. An example to New York and the nation of how this should be done, a calming effect on the nation because we're getting straight talk. Not the daily campaign events of the show Trump puts on, where he's masking information, giving false hopes. Cuomo tells it like it is. The governor said, a crisis shows you a person's soul. He may have meant himself, but it applies equally to Trump. We the people have leaders and they are emerging among the governors. I submit that Governor Cuomo has shown himself to be first among worthy allies. The rest of the equation is as it always has been in every American crisis. It's about we the people. And we listen to those who give us the facts straight so we know what to do. And they confide to us what they think so that we can evaluate if that is the policy that we should embrace to save ourselves and our neighbors and to get on with our nation and return to work full time. And we can believe that the presentation is earnest and well intended and may just work. That's critical and it may be the only course that could work. So listen to Andrew if you wanna know what's going on, and so will I. Let us now turn to a brief discussion of that you know, presidential race that's still going on, particularly among the Democrats. And I have a country yarn that I'll finish up with that I hope you'll find amusing. Well, it's a critically important element of our national life and governance, but the coronavirus has been number one on our minds for a good reason. What I'm talking about is the presidential election. I, I do think the appearance on a daily basis by Trump uh, is more of an election exercise than it is to manage the crisis, because it seems that every person who gets up to speak has to defer and bow to uh, Mr. Trump. Um, in the Democratic primaries, it's pretty clear after the recent uh, primaries we've had that Joe Biden has a path to the nomination, 1,991 delegates, and that uh, the predictions are he'll get more than that. And so he would have a first ballot victory because he needs 1,991 delegates to be uh, nominated uh, to be our presidential candidate. Uh, Bernie Sanders, who's been a strong contender, uh, has lost his mo, if you will. They used to call it momentum in politics. He had it at the beginning of the race, and uh, from South Carolina on, the race moved toward Joe Biden. And Bernie Sanders is a, a long and well-experienced candidate, and he's gone to Vermont to consider what he'll do next. And he hasn't yet announced what he will do, he could stay in the race all the way up to the convention. Of course, 
that would appear to be more of a spoiler's uh, role. And it might compromise his ability to encourage his supporters to support the ticket, Biden and whoever is the vice presidential candidate. Um, he, could, uh, he could call off his campaign, uh, Bernie Sanders could, and he could choose to endorse or not endorse. Uh, Senator Warren from Massachusetts has not endorsed anyone. The, uh, the rest of the election uh, is really going to be, from Biden's standpoint, a campaign against Trump. I don't think he's going to direct any firepower at uh, Bernie for lots of reasons, including the affection they have for each other despite the words they've exchanged in the campaign. I do think that what you'll see, and we've already seen, is uh, Joe Biden has given statements about how he would handle this crisis, and I think that's critical that we understand it. And it was a much more professional approach, and it showed the experience that he had that I might as I've just talked about Governor Cuomo, might compare in terms of how he's been tested in his life in different crises and come out and given us some idea what he would be like in any prospective crisis. Also, during his campaign for uh, the president, which has begun now, uh, he's run an ad recently about he knew. That is what Trump knew, that he didn't act upon all the earlier statements that he made misleading the nation, delaying our ability to fight the pandemic, to anticipate it, to be ready for it. And let me play you a piece of that, that ad right now. Could have, could have been stopped, could have been stopped pretty easily if we had known, if everybody had known about it uh, a number of months before people started reading about it. We have it totally under control. It's one person that's uh, going to be just fine. We pretty much shut it down coming in from China. I just spoke to President Xi last night, and, uh, you know, we're working on the, the problem, the, the virus. We're going to be pretty soon at only five people, and we could be at just one or two people over the next short period of time. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. And we're prepared, and we're doing a great job with it, and it will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away. Could have been stopped, could have been stopped pretty easily if we had known, if everybody had known about it. Now, the, the next question we have is, will we still have the coronavirus in November when we have the election? And the answer to that is we don't know. Uh, we hope it's going to be short term, but it could be longer term. And to increase the chance of there being a safe election, there are bills in Congress by Senator Chris Coons, delegate, uh, Democrat from Delaware, and Amy Klobuchar, uh, Democrat from Minnesota, who, as you know, ran for president and is uh, considered to be a possible vice presidential candidate. And what they propose is a package to expand vote by mail, early voting so that people will not put themselves at risk or be deterred from voting by the fact that they might have to be in groups and we might still have an abiding concern about the safety of going forward in the election. Uh, it, it's no secret from what I've been saying that uh, Trump has repeatedly failed to be a leader, to be a leader of the people, to be concerned about the public concern instead of the private advantage. Uh, we have to change our chief executive and this current coronavirus proves it as much as any of the other earlier chapters of his misconduct in office. 
So enough about that. I have one final yarn, uh, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Well, uh, there's one light note I'd like to end with. Um, I was kidding a local farmer, Dan Fleming, who's a good friend of mine by now. He uh, helps us get hay and deal with farm issues. And we were talking about stocking up on toilet paper. And I was kidding him about it. And we started talking about the shortages. So uh, he said, you know, paper wasn't the only way. And I said, really? Some may know that the father of American toilet tissue was J.C. Gaiety who sold his medicated paper for the water closet from the time of the Civil War until the 1920s. So some might think there was no need to use anything else after J.C. made his mark. Dan laughed. You know what we did as kids on the farm? Not really. He said in a way that some country folk wind up to tell you something that you think is going to be quite unbelievable. Dan said, when I was a kid, we used corn cobs. He said we especially liked red corn cobs. Dan insisted it was the God's honest truth, and Dan does not lie. So sure enough, based on research online and with people, it became clear that while J.C. had his paper product and it was prevalent, it was not the only way, especially out in the rural countryside. There were some who preferred to use handfuls of straw or Sears Roebuck catalogs. But Dan was spot on. One of the most popular items for use for ahem, cleanup were dried corn cobs. They were plentiful. So you people out there, forget about Costco or Giant or Weiss or whatever store that you go to. Experts say they could be drawn in one direction or turned on an axis. They were also softer on tender areas than you might think. Right. That's enough for this week. I hope you'll join me next week. And when you get a chance to subscribe, please do, because it keeps this podcast alive. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye.